Let me uh, begin by asking this question. How many of you uh, have ever been around a new mom or dad with a new baby before ever in your life? Okay, that's just about all of us. Well, parents go crazy when, parent, when uh, babies are first born. They're like, they're so adorably cute and they're perfect in every way. And they often will be like, you know, isn't she so perfect? Isn't he so perfect? They are just the model of perfection. You know what I'm talking about? But as a pastor, I get to go and be with young families when they're having a baby. And uh, after the baby's born, they'll want me to maybe hold it or dedicate it. And sometimes I look at these babies and I don't say it out loud, but I think in my head, that baby's not so perfect. I mean, it kind of looks like Papa Smurf, you know what I mean? I mean, just the, the head and everything, and it looks different. And I know this because I looked at one particular baby one time who had like a cone-shaped head. And uh, when that baby came out, it looked like a cone-shaped head. I think we have a picture of it right there. <laughs> and it's true. I was born breech, and uh, when I came out, I had this like cone-shaped head, and uh, my wife, you know, lovingly tells me now that she goes, you don't have a cone head, you just have a big head. So I don't know what that means, but anyway, I think it's better, maybe. Um, well, well, all parents, when, when children are first born, they think that their baby is absolutely perfect. And yet the truth is, is that we know that they're not, and we need to acknowledge that these little ones actually carry something called sin. Just like us, our, our children were born with a sin nature. There's just a nature that they tend to lean or there's a bent towards making mistakes, messing up, committing sin. Now, if you don't believe that, don't believe it just because I said it, but Scripture says this. In Romans 3, starting in verse 10, it says this, There is no one righteous, not even your perfect little ones. And how many of us have turned away? How many? All. That means everyone in this gym. All have turned away, and there is no one who does good. And then help me out the last three words. What's it say? Not even one. There's no one, not even one, who has done good. And many of us forget this when it comes to our kids. That our children actually are not perfect, but they're sinful. For example, none of us hold our little baby girl or baby boy and think one day, I think you're going to have piercings that look like this. Look at the side screen. <laughs> like, I guarantee mom and dad never thought that's what their little baby was going to look like, okay? We, we never think we will give our baby's money as they get a little bit older and they don't use the money well but we don't think anything of it and then one day they take credit cards and they max them out and they file bankruptcy we don't think that our little child that we're holding is going to become an alcoholic or a drug addict i mean i can still remember looking at my 
two little girls and thinking, oh, Jordan, Shiloh, you're so beautiful. God, I wonder what you're going to do in their life. And I remember praying time and time again, Jordan and Shiloh, you know, God, please help them to impact this world in a greater way than their mom or I ever have. I mean, you, you never hold your little baby and go, you know, one day I'm going to take you to rehab, you know? Like, you don't look at little babies, do you? You, you don't think that. And you don't think also that, you know, maybe one day you'll become pregnant as a teenager out of wedlock. You, you don't look at your babies and, and think that. You don't think that maybe one day your child will become bulimic or anorexic or rebellious or an addict or violent or whatever. You just don't have those thoughts when you're holding your tiny little baby. And yet, occasionally, maybe even more than occasionally, the ones that we love end up going a wrong direction. But if you're like me and so many others... You want to believe that if you try really, really hard as a parent and you do your best and you bring them to church and you pray to God about them, that that they'll turn out okay. If I just honor God, they'll turn out just fine. And yet we see examples all around us today and throughout Scripture that that's not always the case. Today, what I want to do is I don't want to talk about priorities or principles or discipline. I don't want to talk about when everything is going right and there's achievements with your kids. But what I want to talk about is when things don't turn out the way that you want. When it doesn't happen how you had planned. When your kids go outside the boundaries of God... And against our wishes. I want to talk today about prodigals. Kids who are rebellious or reckless and they go off and they do something outside of God's path. Maybe some of you here today, you have a prodigal son. You have a prodigal daughter. And unfortunately, for many others of you, if you don't have one, there may be one that comes in your future. Seasons of hurt and loneliness and emptiness and pain. And if you're hurting this morning because of one of your kids, I want to give you some encouragement. And the the encouragement is this, and it's our big idea this morning. God understands parental pain. And this is your first fill-in. You can do it on your app or in your program. But God, He really does, out of anyone... He understands parental pain better than anyone else. Look at what it says in Isaiah chapter 1. Here God is speaking about His kids, His children, the people of Israel. And as He's talking about them, He says this, I reared children and brought them up. But what did they do? What's the Scripture say? They rebelled against me. God goes on to say, the ox knows his master. In other words, animals know who they belong to, who is the one that is their parent, their overseer. 
But Israel, he says, my kids, my children do not know. My people do not understand. Folks, if there's anyone who understands parental pain, it is God. It is the Heavenly Father, the perfect parent. I mean, just think about his first two human creations, Adam and Eve. He takes these two people, he creates them, he puts them in a garden that is like paradise. Anything and everything that they could possibly want is right there in the garden. And he's like, have at it. Go have fun. Do whatever you want. Enjoy everything in the garden. Eat any of the fruit from any of the trees. But this one tree, I'm just telling you guys, there's only one rule. Everything else you can do what you want. But there's one rule. Don't eat anything from this one tree. And what do Adam and Eve do? They rebel. And they say, that's what I'm going to do. And they broke the rule. And then God said, well, Adam, from now on, you're going to work your buns off. You're going to work and work and work and work. And now, Eve, you're going to have to submit to Adam. And now when you have babies, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt bad. Real bad. And your kids are going to rebel. And we know that one kid of theirs killed the other one. And from that moment on, God's kids have rebelled. Every single one of us have rebelled against him. And so God, out of anybody, understands parental pain. You know, my two girls, uh, Jordan and Shiloh, they are amazing. They're brilliant. I love them immensely, but they ain't perfect. I mean, they are far from it. They challenge us. They talk back to us. They rebel. They are not perfect. They are not always on track. Let me give you an example. This summer, both of them swam for a swim team. And Jordan is a good swimmer, but she's really competitive, just like her mom. She just doesn't like to lose. And so uh, I'm, I was at this swim meet, and I'm one of the timers, and I'm timing these kids, and they're swimming up and down these lanes. And Jordan gets done, and she didn't swim as good as she could, and she was mad, just like her mom. And she gets out of the pool, and she walks up, and she starts walking toward me, and I put my hand up like a high five, and I'm, I, I say this out loud, I was like, Joe, good race. She didn't even look at me. She just walked on by mad, angry. So they're getting ready for the next race. So I get ready. I, you know, clear my uh, stopwatch. I get ready for the second one. I do it. And the kids go off. They're swimming that way. I look over and I notice there's this, some commotion, um, you know, that is over here in the stands. And I look and I can't tell from the back. This kid takes off their uh, swim cap and throws it down on the ground. And I'm starting to think to myself, like, whose brat is that who is so mad? And then pretty soon I see this finger. I can't see because the kid's in front of me, but I see this finger going off on the side. Like, you better suck it up, buttercup, and change your attitude, you know? 
And uh, all this is going on, and I go back, and I'm, you know, watching my race, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, man, I'm so glad my kids don't act like that. I mean, I just... And so it ends, and I clock, and then I look over, and all of a sudden, that kid turns around, and guess who that kid was? Jordan. And her mom's, like, going like this. You know, she's correcting behavior. Now, a lot of times... People look at PKs, pastors' kids, and they place on them unrealistic expectations. They have expectations for the pastors' kids that are actually higher than what they have for their own kids. And I know this because I'm a recovering PK, okay? (laughs) I know what that's like. And maybe sometimes when I give an illustration about my girls and, you know, it, it makes them in a good light and you're thinking, yeah, my kid, you know, I had to drag them in here today. And all of a sudden in the back of your mind, you don't say it out loud, but I know some of you are thinking, you know, well, let's just wait until they're teenagers and see how good your kids are then. Well, folks, I've seen some of your kids before and they ain't so hot either. Okay, so let's do this. Let's just make a commitment as parents that we won't compare our kids to each other. We'll just all be on the same team to support and encourage one another to help each other's kids out. And if a kid goes astray, we don't like get in the back corner and go, oh my gosh, did you just see what they did? And we start gossiping and talking and judging and making everything look real, real ugly real quick for that kid. But let's just make a commitment on the front side that we will encourage one another as parents, we'll support one another, and we'll pray for one another and each other's kids. You agree? Yeah. <clears throat> let's just all commit to doing that. And so if you see my kids messing up, just pray. If I see your kids messing up, We'll pray, okay? Now, when kids do go astray, when they go away from God's standards, from our standards, what do we do? And what I'm talking about are prodigals. Kids who have rebelled and have a reckless life and have walked away from God and our wishes for them. And maybe for some of you who are here right now, you have a prodigal son. You have a prodigal daughter. Maybe you don't have a prodigal child, but maybe you have a family member that's in your family who is a prodigal. And they've walked away. They've been reckless. They've walked away from God. They've hurt other people. They've caused pain in your family. Maybe for others of you, you have a friend. You see it right now. They are going down the wrong path. They are creating some issues. There's pain that is right around the corner for that prodigal. Or maybe for some of you, you have a spouse right now who's going through a prodigal moment. Personally, I have a brother named Tim who has been estranged from our family for two years. And we have prayed, we have reached out. I was able to text him until probably about the last two to three months, and now he doesn't respond to our text. So I understand this, folks. And what do we do when we have someone that we love but they've run away from God. Well, the good news is that Jesus understands what it's like to see prodigals. And so he actually gives us a story in the Bible 
about a prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. And this is what it says. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate when? Now. Not after you're dead. I want it while you're alive. I want it now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, the younger son packed all his belongings and moved to what? What's it say? To a distant land. Folks, this is what prodigals do. They move to distant lands. For example, my brother didn't want us to know where he was from, but he had to get a birth certificate, and so we had to send it to him, and he thought he was being all cool, keeping us away, not knowing where he was. But to send that birth certificate, we had to have an address. So I know he lives in Washington State, which that is a distant land. And it's there. But sometimes it may be an actual distance that you go geographically, but sometimes it might be a distant spiritual land. The kids will say, you know what? I don't want anything to do with this whole Jesus thing anymore. I don't want anything to do with Christianity. I don't believe it anymore. It's just this brainwashing that you put in my head. I don't want anything to do with it at all. I'm out. It's not true. Other people may not be at a spiritual distant land, but they may be at a moral distant land. Okay, mom and dad, you got all these rules. You want me to act a certain way and I have to do this? Forget your rules. I don't even like your rules anymore. I don't want anything to do with your rules. I'm out. I want to do my own thing when I want to do it. And so they set off for a distant moral land to do things on their own. This is what the son did in this story. So what I want to do right now is just kind of rapid fire style. I want to give you three characteristics of most prodigals. Those that run away to a distant spiritual or moral land. Here's the first one. Prodigals become increasingly self-centered. Prodigals become increasingly self-centered. They're all focused on me. Me, myself, and I. Well, this is what I want to do. I don't care about you. Forget about you. I'll take care of me and what I think. It's all about me. You've done me wrong. It's about me now. Here's the second thing. Prodigals think that they know all the answers. Prodigals always think that they know all the answers. Now, this becomes extremely tough when you're parenting a 15-year-old. And this 15-year-old, who has very little experience in life, walks up to you in which you have a whole uh, plethora of experience in life. And they basically say, Mom and Dad, you don't know squat. And by the way, I think you're stupid. And if you don't choke them at that time and you back up, all of a sudden you're like, I'm hurt. Because here is this person who used to take my advice and they would listen. And now I'm the dumbest person in the world and they don't listen anymore. Here's a third common characteristic. 
Prodigals demand immediate gratification. Prodigals demand immediate gratification. Remember, the son comes to him and says, Give me my share of the inheritance and give it to me. What was the word? Now. I want it now. I'm going to do my own thing now. I'm going to potty hotty now. I want it and I want it when? Now. There's an old story. Uh, it's one of my favorites. I've used it uh, before. I don't think here, but uh, it's a great illustration. There's this uh, 16-year-old boy who has hair all the way down to his waist. And his dad hates the fact that he has such long hair. And so the son says, well, dad, I'm 16 now and all my friends are getting a car. I think I should get a car. The dad turns to him and says, until we do something with your hair and you get it cut, we ain't even going to talk about a car. And all of a sudden this kid's like, well, dad, Jesus had long hair. And the dad came back and said, well, Jesus walked everywhere he went to. Don't you love that story? (laughs) Folks, her prodigals, it becomes all about them. They become increasingly self-centered. They think they know all the answers and they demand gratification now. Now in our story in Luke, the story continues in verse 13. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a what? What was it again? Moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine slept over the land and he began to starve. Verse 15. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him. And the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. The whole story of the prodigal son is a story of a downward spiral. And let me just say that when a prodigal moves away from the protective boundaries of a loving God, they always start to spiral downward and out of control. Some of you, if the truth were known, where you're sitting right now, you realize the prodigal is me. My life is out of control. I may come here on Sunday, or this is the first Sunday I've ever come, but my life is out of control, and I have walked away from the things of God. I am not living within the boundaries that he set, and there's more pain and hurt that's being caused to me and my family. Now, let me admit, for a while, it's pretty fun to be a prodigal, especially if you have money. You can go out and have a lot of fun, do a lot of good stuff, no doubt about it. But I'm telling you, you're just kidding yourself if you think that eventually it doesn't catch up to you. Because it does. And when it does, there is great pain. 
I mean, you might be able to put it off until later today or tomorrow or next week or next month or next year or if you're lucky, the year after that. But your sin will find you out eventually. And it will cost you something that you will not want to pay. It will take you down a spiral of pain. Now, for me, my prodigal experience took place in college, the first three years of college. Now, before college, I was the ideal PK, pastor's kid. I towed the line, three-sport athlete, academic, in the choir, went to church, did the whole thing. And when I got some freedom on my own, I turned away from God and everything that I knew. I started not even believing in Christianity. I would go, I was a history major, so I went to these multiple countries, Muslim faith, Hindu faith, Uh, Buddhist faith. I just didn't believe that Christianity was it. I even remember coming back home after being in Africa with a Muslim prayer bead, which isn't a bad thing, but when your dad's a pastor, it's a bad thing. And he was not very happy, but he was patient. And pretty soon, I had this thought in my head. God had my life for the first 18 years. Now I'm going to do what I want, when I want, how I want. I'm going to do my own thing. So now, forget you, God. It's going to be about me. And it was. And it wasn't long until I started experimenting with alcohol and drugs and drinking and All kinds of stuff. Messing around with different girls. Not being faithful to one girl. I mean, the whole thing was about partying, telling jokes, and getting the girls. And I'll tell you what, for a period, man, it was fun. But then the next morning, or that next week, the loneliness and emptiness was heavy. Because I was trying to be something that I was never designed to be. I was trying to be someone that God had never designed me to be. And there's so many times that I probably should have been kicked out of school or been caught to doing something. And God's grace and protection, I'm sure, from the prayers of my parents, took care of me. And I was covered. But finally, there was a moment that I hit rock bottom In my junior year. And I remember it was the lowest moment I can remember in my life. And I walked out at 2 o'clock in the morning. And I just looked up at the sky. And I was like, God, I'm so tired. The way I'm living. It's not fun anymore. This whole doing life, the way that I want to do it, it's not working And the pain and the loneliness and the emptiness is heavy. And I started realizing then too that the worry and the hurt that I was causing was not just affecting me, but it was affecting my parents. And you know even more so who I was hurting? My Heavenly Father. That He, more than anyone else, cared for me and loved me. And I was hurting Him. And when kids are going through prodigal periods, 
You know what parents often do? They stay at home and they begin to start asking questions. Where did we go wrong? What did we mess up on? God, what could we have done differently? And then all of a sudden, mom and dad start going back and forth. And dad's like, we should have just, you know, spanked that kid more. And then mom is like, oh, we were just way too hard on him. We should have made him more responsible. We should have helped him to get a job. We should have disciplined her more. We should have not given her everything that she wanted. We should have sent her to a private school. We should have never sent her to that spring break. Remember that spring break that we sent her to? And there was all those kids there. And she came back and it was so different. We shouldn't have done that. We should have never given him a cat. It's like when we gave him that cat, everything changed. We shouldn't have given him the cat. Stupid cat. If you're a cat lover, don't don't send me emails, okay? I love cats. But parents, those of you who have a prodigal, Let me just say this. If you have a prodigal son or daughter, it's not all your fault. It's not all your fault. They made some choices. Yeah, maybe you could have done some things better. Every parent feels that way. But, you know, just like we can't take all of the credit when they do something really, really great, in the same light, we can't take all the blame when they mess up. So, it's not all your fault. Because ultimately, God is the only one who's able to go and love and correct his kids in an ultimate way that can bring them out of the trouble that they're in. So parents, don't beat yourself up. Now let's get real practical for a second, because If you have a prodigal son or daughter or a family member or a friend or someone in your life, what do you do? I mean, how do you reach them? Well, the first thing is, every single one of you, I would encourage you to have unwavering prayer. That you just pray and pray and pray and pray and pray. And when you're sick and tired of prayer, you pray some more. Paul, the guy who wrote close to half of the New Testament, is considered one of Jesus' closest friends. He wrote to a group of people in Colossae named the Colossians, and he's writing to them as a group of people, but I think the prayer and his teaching has focused for one another. And in Colossians it says this, We have not stopped doing what? What's it say? Praying for you. Unwavering prayer. And then he goes on. We have not stopped praying for you and asking God to do what? Fill you. And we pray, why? In order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may do what? Please him in every way. What do we do? We don't stop praying. Why? 
Because as we send our prayers toward God, He hears everyone. And in His perfect timing, He will deal with the prodigal in such a way that shows love that there will be submission to Christ and they will change and they will be different. You know what I hear from prodigal parents who have prodigal sons and daughters all the time is they'll say, well, we did everything we know to do. I mean, we sent that kid to counseling, we gave him money, we sent him to rehab, we tried this, we tried the other thing, we grounded them, we took their phone, we gave the phone back, we took that phone again, gave that phone back, took that phone again, we took off all of the stuff that was on it, all they have is a crappy flip phone now, they're the only one, all they can do is text and call, and that's what we did, we took the car away, we gave them discipline, and now, I guess the only thing left to do is pray. Say what? Really? Do you know how insulting that is to God? That you go, well, we tried all of these things, and we did this, and we did that, and, you know, finally, I guess we'll pray, but I don't even think God can do anything. Really? I was praying this week for all of our parents. I was like, God, give us one phrase when it comes to prayer that parents could take home. And this is what I sensed. Prayer is not a last-ditch effort. Prayer is the first line of attack. Let me say that again. Prayer is not a last-ditch effort. It is our first line of attack. When you're praying for a prodigal, you don't do a nice little dinner prayer or Sunday school prayer of like, Oh, Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for everything. Thank you for the food. Thank you for Sally and Billy and Joey and Kui and Louie. Ooh, I love them too. No, no, no. When you're praying for a prodigal, you pray aggressively. You're like... God of heaven and earth, you who created everything and can do anything that is possible, even though I don't believe, go after him, God. Please go after him. God, go after her. And this is where you become aggressive because prayer is not some passive ritual. It is a power-packed change agent. And prayer moves God and then God moves any mountain that we have. Prayer moves God, and then God moves mountains. Now you might be thinking, well, why do I pray? Well, let me give you some things real quick. First of all, you pray that God would keep them safe. That God keeps them safe so that people can see that God is a good shepherd. He cares. Even with his most rebellious kids. The second thing you pray. I pray for right people. I pray for the right people to come around and God take out the wrong people. That's what I'm praying for my brother right now. God, be with him. Put some good people around him and take the bad people away from him. Whatever it takes so that people would see that you're great. And then finally, and this is a bold one, if you really mean business, like you're really, really about this, this is what you do. God, would you do whatever it takes? Do whatever it takes 
so they will turn back to you and your name will be made great. Now, folks, that's the scariest prayer that you'll ever pray for a prodigal. Do whatever it takes. Several years ago, we prayed that prayer for my brother for seven years. We had not talked to him for seven years. And he was a car accident that almost killed him. But he was brought back to our family for a season of about seven years. And when you pray that, you pray it believing that God, whatever it takes. So you start with unwavering prayer. The next one is you live with unending patience. Galatians 6, 9 says this. Let us not become weary in doing good. Don't get weary. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we what? What's it say? We'll reap a harvest if what? We do not give up. Let's say that out loud. We do not give up. In the story of the prodigal, when the son finally comes back home, look at what it says in verse 20. And while the son was still a long way off, his father, what's it say? He saw him. In other words, it's like the father must have went to the city limit on the edge of town and he's looking for his son. Or he stands on the porch looking down the road in the evening looking for his son to come home. Or he walks all the way down to the edge of the road they live on at the end of their drive. And he's looking to see if his son comes home. And he's praying, God, send him back today. Send him back today. I'm believing that he's coming home today. If not today, tomorrow. But God, I'm asking that you would send him today. And the father never, ever, 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 ever gave up. And neither should we. The father didn't write him off and say, hey, man, you messed up. You screwed up. You're gone. He didn't say, hey, you're no son of mine. You're out of the will. But the father loved him enough that he loved him enough to make his own choice. How painful it was to hit rock bottom. And that's a difficult thing to do as a parent. Now, some of you parents right now, you're like freaking out. You're thinking to yourself, well, what am I going to do? My kid, my kid is far too gone. My kid is way too gone. No, they're not. No, they're not. God loves to bring back prodigals. In fact, the one that he's talking, the one that's talking to you right now is one. And God was so patient and kind and loving with me, and he never gave up. I mean, if there was a person like me and my college recklessness and rebellion in that period, and now God has me doing what I'm doing today, what could God do with your prodigal. So don't give up. Pray, 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 and then wait, 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 and in due time, God will show up. And then finally, when and if your prodigal ever comes home, live with unconditional love. You just say, I'm going to live with unconditional love. Folks, the story of the prodigal son is one of the most 
touching stories in all of Scripture. And in verse 20, it says this. His father saw him coming, and his father was filled with what? What's it say? Love and compassion. So he ran to his son, and he embraced him, and he kissed him. Now, folks, let me ask you. Did this boy, did this son deserve what he got from his father? No! He didn't. He didn't deserve this at all. He had screwed up, messed up, royally messed up. And yet the father went crazy. He's like this. Hey, go find Bessie the cow. We are having steaks tonight. And go get my best robe. Let's put it on his filthy body. Because on the outside, I want everyone to know that he is amazing. Find my biggest ring. Place it on his finger. Because my son was blind, but now he sees. He was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. And the father shows this extravagant love to his son. Unconditional, no strings attached kind of love. And folks, this is the moral behind this whole story. God is the Heavenly Father. And all of us are runaways. Every single one of us is a runaway. In our hearts, we have run away from God time and time again. We have broken the boundaries. We have ignored Him. We have walked away. We are the self-centered ones. We are the ones who think we have all the answers. We are the ones who demand immediate gratification. And God the Father is so patient. And He sits on the porch of heaven. And He looks down upon planet earth. And He waits for His prodigals to look and turn toward Him. And when they do, He immediately runs through the power of His Spirit to them and says, You are loved. You are cared for. I'd like to close by having you look at a story about a couple named Carrie and Jeff. And they were in Vermont. And they were prodigals. And they ran away from what they knew. And they came and they found a distant land, Muncie, Indiana. And they found themselves here. And when they found themselves, even though there was destruction all over their marriage and in their family, they found a loving Heavenly Father that reached out to them through this church called the Jar, and they got connected into a small group, and they experienced amazing love. And although they had no community, now they found the community of Christ. Let's look at the side screens at their story. Hi, my name is Carrie. A year ago, Jeff and I, um, it was shortly after our fourth wedding anniversary, and um, we were facing a really hard time. It was exposed shortly after our anniversary that there was unfaithfulness, um, shame, selfishness, 
um, just a lot of a lot of things um, that were detrimental to our marriage. And so we were really at sort of rock bottom in our marriage. We just we almost didn't make it. We sought counseling and we just felt it pressed on our hearts from God to seek a fresh start and just sort of take our family out of there. Um, so we packed everything up and um, moved to Muncie, Indiana. It was a huge leap of faith um, and it was really scary. It was especially with our trust in each other being so fragile. And then to top that off, we had two little kids that at the time were three and one, and then I was eight months pregnant. So we were really strained in our marriage at that time. And um, because we were so strained in our marriage, we were also strained in our parenting. We were really pouring from empty cups. We just didn't have any margin. We had nothing left to give to our kids at the time either. We happened one day to stumble upon the jar. And that first Sunday that we were there, um, they were doing a plug about small groups and bringing an, a couple on stage, um, Shane and Scotty Brooks. And I'll never forget the first meeting that I had with Scotty Brooks. Um, she was just super, super warm and super caring and inviting. And after I had, Hadley, my daughter, um, she provided meals for my family. She cooked and um, delivered them, and she also offered to stay with my two little boys when I was having doctor's appointments and things that first couple of weeks. You know, at a time in my life when I just had no friends or family, no support, um, I just really needed that. It meant the world to me, and I just remember feeling so overwhelmed and so grateful um, and so accepted and just really inspired and um, through my small group. I am so encouraged and my cup is more full and out of that Jeff and I have more love than ever before and we're able to love each other better than ever before. Um, there's been so much growth and healing through being a part of this small group. Um, and because Jeff and I have more love to offer, we are able to offer our kids more love than ever. And, um, you know, not every day is easy in a marriage. Not every day is easy parenting. And I can genuinely say that I feel like I credit the JAR and the small group program with the fact that Jeff and I are still married. And if you want to have that support and that connection and um, experience these things, then there's a chair for you too. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come up. They'll be on the side screens. And uh, if you'd like to pray for anything, they would love uh, to pray with you. And I was thinking that maybe for some of you, you've been running away from God. And maybe today is the day where you're, where you're like, I'm tired of running. I was thinking of this scripture in Isaiah that says this. But the Lord still waits for you. That right now, in this moment, that your Heavenly Father is waiting for you. And what is He waiting for? He is waiting for you to come to Him so He can show you love and compassion. For the Lord is a faithful God. Today, God's arms are wide open. 
inviting you back into a relationship with him. Let's pray. And you know, I was just thinking today that maybe you're a parent of a prodigal son or daughter, or you have a friend who's a prodigal or someone in your family is. And if you're kind of like today, you know, that it's your desire that they come home, would you just raise your hand and say, you know what, I want that prodigal child to come home. Whoever that is, someone in your family, and as we lift our hands, we lift up in prayer as we're lifting them up. God, I pray right now a bold and courageous prayer that, God, you would bring the prodigals home to you. Family members, sons, daughters, friends, God, bring them home. And I pray, God, that you would do whatever you can through the power of your Holy Spirit to allow them to know that they are welcome back and that they would receive unconditional love if they would do that. And maybe some of you are here today and you're a prodigal. You've been running away from God or you yourself have been drifting away from God and today might be the day that you could say, I'm tired, God, of running. I just need you in my life. I need your forgiveness. I need your love. I need a fresh start with you. I need you, Father, today. And if that's you, I want to invite you to say a prayer out loud. We always pray together at the jar, but that you would pray this right now. Just repeat after me. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of love. Jesus, forgive me. Make me brand new. I believe you died and rose again so I could live with you. Fill me with your spirit so I could know you, serve you, and follow you for the rest of my life. My life is not my own. Today I give it to you. Thank you for new life. Now you have mine. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey, let's give a hand for everyone who said that prayer for the first time. And if you did, back here at the left corner uh, is someone that will pray with you, Chuck Mock, and uh, would love to just give you a Bible, a free gift. Otherwise, have a great day. Know that you're loved in this place, everybody.